Welcome to Beyond the Page, a podcast from People's World. I'm Matt Bernico. And I'm Chauncey K. Robinson. Beyond the Page is the podcast companion to People's World. Beyond the Page brings you in-depth interviews with journalists and activists on the most pressing stories on progressive politics, labor, and the struggle for socialism in the United States. In this episode, we have a special interview with Reverend Liz Theo Harris, the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. In case you didn't know, somehow, the Poor People's Campaign is an anti-poverty social justice movement in the United States, and it is very interesting and cool. Uh, In this episode, we talk with uh, Reverend Theo Harris a little bit about the Poor People's Campaign at large and like what they've been doing. We talk about COVID-19, the upcoming election in Georgia, and then the intersection of religion politics at the end. And oh boy, you're going to you're going to want to stick around for that last section. It's very cool. All right, let's go to the interview. Today, we're joined by Reverend Liz Theo Harris, uh, the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. Liz, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us today and to, you know, jump right into it. Um, back in November, the Poor People's Campaign descended on Washington, D.C. and 25 state capitals to demand further financial and medical relief from top government officials in the, nation, in the nation's fight against COVID-19 pandemic. This week, uh, the Poor People's Campaign unveiled some wide-ranging policy agendas for the incoming White House administration. You know, can you expound on some of the demands and highlights of some of the uh, proposals that were made? And how can others get involved to help put the pressure on government officials to take action? Yeah, so this is this is so important in this moment, right? I mean, before COVID-19 hit, there were 140 million people who were poor and low-income Um And this pandemic and the economic recession that's connected to it has just deepened and intensified that pain and suffering. Um, You know, who is hurt first and worst by this pandemic um, in the public health sense are poor people and people of color, essential workers, um, and who was already hurting um, uh, and who is hurt the most from this economic recession is, is the same. And so... We, we gathered um, on November 23rd after the election had happened to say, say that we're still here and that the, the needs and demands of the 140 million poor and low-income people need to be at the center of all of our national policy and, and um, you know, discourse, but also particularly action. And so we did unveil these 14 policy priorities. Um, uh, they're taken basically from the Poor People's Jubilee platform, our, our policy platform that we we launched this past June when we had more than 2.5 million people join us for the mass Poor People's Assembly and Moral March on Washington um, that was online. It was supposed to be in person, but um, uh, that wouldn't have been responsible. And so we had the largest gathering of poor and low-income people that was happening on social media. Um, and we unveiled, you know, these bold and visionary policies um, that really are about healing and transforming this country from the bottom up, not from the top down. Um, those, these priorities then come from that. Um, and, and both these priorities and the overall policy platform, you know, really come out of the, the struggles, the united battles that poor and low-income people are, are, are waging in communities across the country. Um, they include, you know, obviously an, a comprehensive, free, and just COVID relief. Um, you know, making sure that we actually are uh, having equitable and free testing, treatment, 
vaccines, quality care, um, uh, making sure that uh, we're guaranteeing an adequate income um, with rapid direct payments um, to all, uh, all people that need it, um, that we need to have a rent freeze and a mortgage moratorium. Um, we need to have a moratorium on all utility shutoffs um, and that we have to increase the uh, amount of um, kind of government help around food and economic security, that we need to be fighting for rural hospitals, that we need to be making sure we're infusing Indian health services with the adequate resources that, that, that folk need, um, that we have to be making sure that our essential workers who are really being treated as expendable um, are, are given fair wages and, and safety standards and paid sick leave, um, and uh, that we, we need to be um, freeing people um, from detentions and from incarceration um, uh, uh, at, at the same time as we're, we're making sure that our public schools are, are funded and our, um, and our debt is relieved. Um, so that's what we have to say about COVID. But then we also know that we can't respond to COVID without um, making sure that the fissures that COVID has spread on, the fissures of racism and right, of poverty, yeah. and ecological devastation and militarism aren't also taken care of. And so the rest of our policy priorities are really about exactly that. Um, you know, quality health care, minimum wages, um, quality housing, a federal kind of green jobs program to build up investments, you know, protecting and expanding voting rights, equitable education, immigration reform, ensuring the rights of indigenous peoples, fair taxation, you know, um, you know, cuts, cutting this insane uh, military budget that we have, um, but then also making sure that poor and low income leaders and others that are leading this poor people's campaign are able to, to have a permanent position, you know, in our um, governmental structures to ensure and kind of make sure there's accountability when it comes to these issues. And, and so, so much of the organizing we're doing right now is really about uh, building up the power, the power of 140 million poor and low income people, um, the, the power of, of folks coming together across all the lines that divide us. Um, to be able to do, you know, what what Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said in the last years of his life when he was calling for a poor people's campaign, um, uh, power for poor people will really mean having the ability, the aggressiveness, the togetherness um, to make the power structures of this nation say yes when they may be desirous of saying no. And so that's really what our work is about. And um, what well, we spend our time, you know, building and mobilizing and organizing and educating and um, and then coming forward with these with these demands. I think it's a it's a powerful set of demands for sure. I really appreciate, too, how uh, it's not just about, um, you know, it, it, a lot of it is about COVID relief and that's all super important, but it's also about building building power of the people. And I think yes. that's really um, what makes it so, um, I don't know, interesting, exciting. And so necessary. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Well, uh, I guess I want to ask you uh, another question that maybe complicates some of those things a little bit. So the Poor People's Campaign draws a lot of its power from the broad demands of poor and working class people. And that's what makes it really successful. 
But in this past election, the political discourse has highlighted the intense division this country faces um, because of, uh, yeah, I mean, the ways left and right wing forces have kind of played themselves up. So how do you see that division playing out in poor and working class communities? Um, you know, where are the lines of this division? Um, how do we uh, think about them in, in light of um, the, the broad demands that the Poor People's Campaign makes? So I think there is a lot of division in the society, but I think that division is actually um, based on the kind of, again, as Dr. King talks about, like the, 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 the other America, the two Americas that are in this country, uh, one of the rich and powerful where they have everything and more, um, and then and and then another America of 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 poverty and desperation and want and and that's in rural areas and suburban areas and exurban areas and urban areas um, and that impacts people of all races and all nationalities, all um, religious traditions, all genders, all sexualities, um, and 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 that's who makes up the 140 million poor and low income people. Um, uh, and and I think. Um, when, before we uh, fully know uh, how this election turned out, um, you know what we have is is some of the the um, some of the early data about um, you know uh, when people when people were leaving, you know, saying this is who we voted for. Um, again, we we still need to look at it more, but but one of the really important parts of of what we see about. Uh, who voted for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris versus who voted for Donald Trump and Mike Pence is actually that more than 55% of poor and low income people voted for, uh, for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and did not vote for, um, for Donald Trump. And, and the big, big places where Donald Trump had an increase in those that voted for him are people that made more than $100,000 a year. Um, there's a direct connection between uh, the tax cuts that Donald Trump has, um, has passed um, in his time and people voting for him. Um, and, and, and in fact, more than 6 million more poor people, low-income people voted in this election and, and were actually decisive in voting against Donald Trump. Um, so I think that 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 it's really important um, that we we don't say that that uh, it's the poor who gave us Donald Trump because that actually is not the case. Um, uh, and and what we're seeing in the Poor People's Campaign is that people are very much coming together across all of these lines to to uh, call forward the need for health healthcare and living wages. I mean, what? What, what won in this election is every single race where somebody was running, even in very contested elections, um, where somebody was running for, um, with, with a platform of Medicare for all, um, that, that person won. Uh, in Florida, Donald Trump might have gotten more votes than Joe Biden did, but what got more votes than either of them was living wages and uh, and raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour, um, and and I think it's really important to actually have um, you know in 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 our kind of national uh, life and in our narrative around around this division is that what is dividing people is is poverty and it's making people's lives very unlivable. 
Um, and that when politicians come forward and in the places where, you know, Joe Biden pledged um, that if elected, ending poverty will be, uh, you know, his theory of change, um, uh, not just an aspiration. Um, that's where people responded, you know, in the places where folks were were getting to vote for living wages and health care and and strong social safety nets and and a fair taxation system. Again, people that won and that won actually by by quite a bit. Um, and that won in all kinds of places across the country. Um, and so what we're finding is that from, you know, in Kentucky, the hood to the holler and and from Alabama to, to Appalachia, there are people who are there um, at the ready to, to be organized, not just into a political party, but into a movement, into a movement that actually centers the needs and the demands of, of poor people. Um, and so I, I think that's what we saw um, in this election. Very true. Um, you know, speaking of poor people, working class people coming out, making their voices heard and the high numbers of the turnout, you know, we have another election coming up or more so a runoff election in Georgia uh, coming up in January. These elections may very well determine the direction of the Senate in passing the relief needed for people due to this pandemic. Yet we know from past elections that Georgia, like many other places, suffers from voter suppression. What are your thoughts regarding the vote, electoral activism and the direction that the nation needs to go in come 2021? So I think it's really important to talk about this issue of voter suppression. Um, we have now gone through two presidential election cycles and then other midterms, right? Without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act, right? Um, and what we saw, because the Poor People's Campaign was doing extensive uh, voter protection and poll monitoring, um, even just in the November 3rd um, election, was, you know, lots of instances of, of people's um, right to vote really being abridged. Um, and I think that this is actually an untold story of the last two presidential elections, um, is that what brings us to the place we are as a nation today is uh, the need by some extremists to, to make sure that, that folks don't have the right to vote. But then a, a almost bipartisan consensus where um, where where people are not concerned as they should as concerned as they should be about um, about this attack on our democracy and so I mean I think what what I'm hoping that we're going to see in Georgia is you know a lot of folks doing very strong work there to make sure that that voter suppression doesn't get to reign the day um, but it is really important that um, that what we have seen in this campaign is that any state that is passing racist voter suppression laws, upholding racist voter suppression laws, um, is is a state that has the least people with health care, the lowest wages, the highest poverty, right? And that so that therefore really struggling and fighting and advocating for strong voting rights is is and a strong democracy is is very necessary if we're going to actually be able to lift the load of poverty. And so, you know, it's it's uh, we'll see with with Georgia. Um, you know, there's a lot of eyes there. There's a lot of people organizing. You know, in the Poor People's Campaign, uh, our our state committee there has decided to really focus on rural voters 
and, and connecting across race, across geography with, with poor and low income people all across the state um, and trying to, to have people hear their name, their condition, their, their issues, their demands in, in these Senate um, uh, races. Um, uh, and then also protect people's um, actual right to be able to then um, elect uh, those people who, who can most serve their, their needs. Yeah, I think that's a really good word on uh, voter suppression. Um, so important. Well, speaking of Georgia, but in a slightly different register lately, there's been a lot of um, <laughs> name calling and sort of weird religious takes on Raphael Warnock. He's a candidate in Georgia, and he's also a pastor um, and a really interesting character for sure. Um, I like to hear him speak. And uh, but anyways, things got really heated in a recent sort of debate between him and uh, his opponent, Loeffler. Um, and I guess it, it made me think a little bit about the ways that uh, I, you know, like religion and politics have been really intertwined in, in this past election. I mean, in the United States in particular, but this, this election brought a lot of it out, right? A lot of the that stuff came bubbling up. There are, are right wing people uh, who are religious, you know, who are on the Supreme Court making decisions about church gatherings and COVID and, you know, all kinds of other things as well. And then we have some more progressive and left wing people like Raphael Warnock, maybe. Um, who who are making their voices heard as well? Um, so how can we sort this all out? Like, what? How do we make sense of the ways that religious populations have been split by politics in this past election? I don't know. What do we do with any of this? Yeah, I mean, so I'm you know I'm a pastor and preacher, also a biblical scholar, and you know have have really come to um, this movement. I mean, both out of necessity, I've been homeless and worked all kinds of low wage jobs, but also from a, a faith perspective. And and in, in the Poor People's Campaign, uh, we really avoid talking about the left and the right um, when it comes to religion in particular, because really what's at the moral center of our faith traditions, and this is faith traditions across um, different uh, religions, um, is, the caring for those um, most marginalized, um, the organizing of society around the needs of um, of everybody, which means starting with um, the poor, the homeless, the immigrant neighbor, um, and and so uh, you know, and and what we've found is that there's two thousand to twenty five hundred passages in the Bible um, that all talk about justice for the poor. So that if you cut those passages out, um, the entire Bible falls apart. Um, uh, but the, the the handful of issues that that more extremists will use um, to to talk about um, religion, you know, the idea that Jesus was a card carrying member of the NRA, or that um, prayer in schools is the is the key issue. Um, I mean, those issues really don't even make it into the Bible, don't even make it into our sacred texts. Um, but they've been used in a political way to be able to um, really, I think, divide and distract folk um, from really what's at the at the heart of our faith traditions. Um, so, you know, I, I know Reverend Dr. Warnock. Um, he is an alum from Union Theological Seminary and was a student of James Cone. Um, uh, I knew him when he was at Union. And uh, um, I think he and, and many others, you know, there's there's about 20 uh, different national faith bodies um, Jewish folk, Hindu, Muslim, um, all kinds of evangelical, Catholic, other kinds of Christian folks, um, and whole bodies representing millions of people, um, thousands of congregations that have um, come aboard for the Poor People's Campaign um, and, and see that these issues of, of uh, 
immigration reform and protecting the poor and, and making sure that we have a free healthcare system um, and, and really making sure that, uh, uh, you know, that we, we raise up some of these um, religious uh, teachings, like things like Isaiah 10, uh, woe to you who legislate evil and deprive the poor of their rights. Um, uh, the fact that um, uh, there's a very powerful group of, 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 of so-called Christian leaders who have been able to really hijack and redefine the moral issues of our day when, when our, our texts, when our traditions, uh, when, when our, our even larger faith bodies say a very different message, um, I think is extremely important in terms of movement building and and um, and really transforming the society. And you know, uh, uh, I have I have a lot to say on it because again, um, we often will hear religious justification, um, uh, whether it's Donald Trump showing up with an upside down Bible in front of um, <laughs> a, a church across from the White House, or whether it's um, you know different legislatures um, basically denying. Uh, kids' food stamps and and using the Bible to do so. Um, uh, there there's a a really heretical religion out there that that justifies poverty, justifies um, uh, oppression, justifies state violence. Um, uh, because what what our religious traditions and texts actually say is exactly the opposite. Uh, thanks for that. I think that's a really helpful way to get your mind around some of that. Yeah, that was powerful. Woe to those. <laughs> yes. That's a word right there. Right? I mean, it's like, or James 5. So that's Isaiah 10. James 5. Listen, you rich people. Um, weep and wail about the misery that is going to come upon you. The wages you failed to pay your workers cry out against you. Their cries have reached the ear of God. You have fattened yourself for the end days. Uh, it's it just, you know, and we could just keep on going, right? Yeah. I mean, um, uh, you know, or, or, or the, the instruction about how how our society is supposed to be constructed, rather whether it's through the manna, um, that's you know what the what the people, uh, the freedom fighters eat um, when they're in the wilderness, where nobody can have too much and nobody can have too little, no matter what you what you uh, gather, um, it is enough, um, and it's it doesn't allow for the kind of hoarding, for the kind of uh, structuring of inequality into our systems, and and then you know you bring that to, to uh, a you know a, a book like the Acts of the Apostles, where there was no needy person among them, because because uh, all who had any resources came them, and they put them at the feet of the apostles, and they were distributed to each as any had need. Right? I mean, this is this is the Bible, right? This is what our faith traditions teach. Um, uh, judgment against those who would put house to house and uh, uh, and and then and liberation to to those who would um, try to be on the side of God and to make sure that that all needs are met. Um, this week, I've been spending a bunch of time with a a passage from Matthew um, that we often hear about. Um, uh, you know, and and the the king will say to the nations, um, you know. You didn't, you know, uh, it's all about, you know, you know, the least of these. I'm sure folks hear it. But but if, if you um, but if you actually read the text, it says, you know, basically in every person that is homeless, there is where you find God um, and and where uh, 
you also find judgment because a society has allowed people um, to, to be homeless, to be hungry um, when there is enough to go around. Wow. I think it's really it's really exciting, though, that, that y'all are pointing this stuff out because, um, you know, I think that there's a certain brand of white evangelical Christianity that's just synonymous with the Republican Party platform. Mm -hmm. So I think to, to draw these... Um, these examples of of the ways that I mean, you know, what your religion actually makes you do. I think it's helpful. It adds a moral weight to to the PPC. It adds a moral weight to, I mean, just the way we think about politics in general. I think it's really great. Yeah, it's kind of that idea of you know, like you were saying about not talking about things in right. I mean, right or left, but you know, right and wrong, right. So it's, you know, that's so, um, you know, such a necessary thing. I almost want to, when you see some of these sound bites where there's a weaponizing of you know, what you were saying with, with uh, using uh, religion as an excuse to be oppressive to, you know, working class folk and stuff. You almost kind of want to shout these verses at these people, like you're kind of doing it wrong. And, you know, it's kind of this narrative that unfortunately gets spread around to so many people um, because of what, but it's so great that your organization is trying to, you know, change that narrative and trying to, because narrative is so important. Um, the message is so important. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, and, you know, the Poor People's Campaign, we put together a, a, a Poor People's Moral Budget, um, and then we were able to present that budget to the um, House of Representatives Budget Committee. And it was really interesting. You know, we, we came, myself and Reverend Barbara, as the co-chairs, but then um, impacted leaders, you know, a woman who's lost her daughter to the lack of health care, you know, a, a, a former um, vet, uh, turned substitute farmer and school teacher um, who, you know, is all against war, um, uh, you know, folks that have lost friends and family members to, to poverty um, and to the lack of housing. And, and, and what was so interesting about the, the time that we spent in this uh, budget committee hearing was that um, so many of the representatives wanted to challenge the very notion um, that we could, that we could, that poor people could have a budget that could say, if we cut the military, if we had a fair taxation system, and if we invested in things like healthcare and housing and, and all the social programs and welfare programs that we need to lift from the bottom, um, that we could, we could actually end poverty. And, and, and what we heard wasn't, um, you know, an economic argument against it. It wasn't, uh, you know, nobody, nobody could say anything. What, what they tried to do is throw the Bible at us. And, and one of these, um, one of these representatives says, you know, uh, directed, you know, first at Reverend Barber and, and then at myself and others, well, you know, I, I was raised, you know, Christian and I've been a Christian my whole life. And I, um, I see, you know, you have these pastors here because both Reverend Barber and I were wearing these stoles that we have that says Jesus was a poor man. And, He's like, and so he, he kind of made these points and he's like, and I read the Bible and there's nowhere in there where Jesus tells Caesar to care for the poor. And, and it was on those terms that these representatives wanted to have a debate about poverty in the richest wow. nation. Right. And, and, you know, you know, 
So her and Barbara's first response was like, well, it's very interesting that you would call yourself Caesar, right? Like, um, <laughs> I love it. and also call yourself a Christian, because if you even have done a little bit of, of, of your homework of, of being a Christian, you know that Jesus is, is only coming up against Caesar. And the whole movement is, is because of the poverty and oppression caused by the Roman empire and, and by Caesar and, and, and that whole structure. Um, and, and then, you know, I was able to continue and be like, well, and, and actually, you know, exactly what is in the Bible is instructions to nations, um, not to individuals, not to, to individual congregations. I mean, that should happen too, but, but the Bible, whether it's from the Deuteronomic code, um, or the, uh, covenant code, you know, from Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, or whether it's, you know, the gospels and Paul's letters, you know, the, the, the instructions in the Bible are for societies, are for um, ruling authorities, are for, for governmental institutions um, to actually organize themselves around the needs of the poor. And, and that's over and over again, um, what, what happens. And so, so the idea that um, just a little charity or just, um, or, or th that that's going to solve problems or that um, there isn't a strong mandate that runs from Genesis all the way to Revelation in the Bible about ending poverty and, and seeing poor and low income people as moral and, and political agents of change. I mean, that's, that's what the Bible is. It's more than that, but it's that. Uh, it's surely no less. Yeah, that's a good word. I really appreciate you bringing this all to us. Um, it's really, yes. uh, I think, an empowering way to think about religion that maybe uh, some folks haven't in a while. Mm -hmm. um, well, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks for bringing us to church a little bit. Uh, I, think, I think we needed it today. Yes. <laughs> it was great. Thank you so much for having me and for for uh, being interested in the Poor People's Campaign and and you know folks should get involved. We have coordinating committees in forty five states across the country, um, and and can find out more at poorpeoplescampaign.org and you can find out more about the Cairo Center that I direct or the repairs of the breach that Reverend Barber um, is president of also online. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Page. If you like what you heard, follow People's World on social media. And remember, we take sides. Yours.